There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Welcome, one and all, to another episode of I Could Never Be Here on the Popcorn Talk Network. Hope you guys have had a great start to your week. Hopefully you had a great weekend, a relaxing weekend to be able to now start your week off with some motivation here on I Could Never Be. That's what we're here for. We provide some motivation talking with people who you look up to, you steam as really successful, and you think they've had an easy path. And we talk with them and, and share their stories, share their grind, share the times when maybe they got knocked down and how they got back up. Always start the show with a little advice for a better life. And I start this show with the lesson of knowing your why. And this was a lesson that we talked about last week, and it kind of really hit me again this week just from seeing different things and re-listening the last week's episode. And just knowing why you're chasing something, maybe having a goal. And it can be anything. You can literally say, my goal is to make a million dollars or $10 million, and that's fine. But just knowing your why, because so often in today's society, we feel like we're chasing things just for the chase. Just because we feel like if we're not chasing something, there's so many motivators out there who say, if you're just sitting around and not doing anything, and you're lazy. And so you feel like, oh, I need to be doing something. I need to be doing something. But if you don't have the goal, then you don't have that satisfaction of achieving the goal. So set the why. Determine why you're doing something, no matter what it is, no matter what that why may be, and you will face and achieve a lot more satisfaction. Today's guest certainly knew his why. He wanted to play with the Beatles. All the way back, 1964, the first time that he saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, and he wanted to be in a rock band. He achieved both of those. And not only did he just play with members of the Beatles and just be in a rock band, but he's also played with several other major artists. The Rolling Stones, John Bon Jovi, John Mellencamp, Avril Levine, Mick Jagger, several others. In fact, he's played on more than 60 Grammy-nominated recordings, and his work and talents have been featured on over 300 million records worldwide. It's a staggering number. And today we're talking with him. We're talking about his book, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll. Please welcome Kenny Aronoff. Kenny, thank you Absolutely, so much man. for joining us, man. I, from the first time we met, what, it's been like two months now, I think. Yeah. And yeah. it's been like, I, I feel like just that conversation that we had uh, really motivated me. I've been really looking forward to having you in here, talking through your book, just incredible. I mean, just the things that you've accomplished in your life and just your ambition, I think, too, yeah. uh, has just been fantastic. Uh, I want to be able to shout out uh, for people who want to follow Kenny before and after the show uh, at Aronoff Official on Twitter, at Kenny Aronoff on Instagram. You can follow me at the only MC on Instagram and on Twitter, and certainly again here on the Popcorn Talk, at the Popcorn Talk on Twitter and on Instagram. You're also available uh, on Apple Podcasts. We have dozens of episodes there. Go like, comment, rate, subscribe. I want to shout out uh, Enrita89, who left a great comment, said thought-provoking and inspiring talking about the show. So we appreciate that if you want to leave a comment. Uh, We're also live on YouTube. So we have people tuning in right now live. If you have a question, put it in the live chat. I monitor that during the show. I'm able to ask Kenny, be able to have you guys join us for this episode that song, Jack and Diane, you talking about the before the show, where you were when that song was being recorded. And that was almost like, you said, a make-or-break moment. Oh, absolutely. Uh, two years prior was um, when I got into the John Mellencamp band, but five weeks after getting in the band, we came out to L.A. to make a record from Indiana, 
And I was so pumped. I told everybody. I mean, that was my Beatles. You know, at, mm -hmm. at ten, saw the Beatles at ten years old, and I wanted to be a rock drummer in a famous rock band that made records and toured. Mm -hmm. I finally get in one after going through all this classical training and turning down the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra and spending four more years trying to make it. And I finally get a break. Five weeks later, we're in L.A. making a record, and in two days, I'm fired. From the record. Wow. And so at that, that critical moment, um, as Jihan's saying, and the reason why I was fired is because I didn't have enough experience uh, making records mm -hmm. to be played on the radio to be number one hit singles. And I never even occurred to me. You know, just get in the band and play, yeah. right? Once and, you're in the band, you're in the band. Yeah, you're in the band. But And John didn't really want me. I didn't even know until I interviewed him in the book. I said, you know, well, you know, when you fired me from me, I didn't fire you. It was the producer producer need to get the record done quick and back then a drummer had to be able to play from beginning to end perfectly in time with feel with the great sounds and the great everything the great feels you could not make a mistake because you were recording on tape and it's more difficult you can punch in easy but mm -hmm. punching out you can hear it mm -hmm. so they you had, they built everything around the drums everything so I, d I didn't have enough experience and he wanted to move very fast to make mm -hmm. a record there's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. So he wanted his session guys. So when John's telling me to go home, I was at the Chateau... Barman. I remember the room was like 328 or something. And uh, the, we, we had a band meeting, and he's telling me, you go home. And as he's telling me to go home, I went, no, I'm not going home. There's no way. I was, like, mortified. I was devastated. I was, like, embarrassed. I'd rather go to Mars. Yeah. And so I said, I ain't going home. And then going I, home is failure. Oh, yeah. What do you mind supposed, I wouldn't even want to leave my house. So I, I, start, I got into this fight-or-fight mode, and I'm not even aware of that until I wrote my book and went, Wow, man, I got this attitude, man. You, you push me up against the wall. I come out fighting. <laughs> so I said, I'm not going home. And uh, I'm like, uh, well, am I still your drummer? I'm trying to negotiate mm -hmm. a deal. He went, well, yeah, but uh, you're not you're not playing on the record. I went, well, I'm going to go in the studio, watch these guys, these session guys play on my record, and I'll learn from them. I'll benefit from that because I'm your drummer. You'll benefit because I'll get mm -hmm. better. And I said, you don't have to pay me. It's a win-win. Which was the deal. That was the deal yeah. breaker. But two years later, I'm in the studio. I vowed. I went home after four weeks of studying these guys and learning and writing down a whole new business model and a new approach to drumming, which was to serve the song, serve the, the artist, serve the producer, the label, whoever it is, to get that song on the radio. And I started practicing. I came up with a whole new... It was like eight hours a day, seven days a week. I started lifting weights, running six miles a day. I was just totally ninja. And my goal is to make the next record. And this is two years later. And now we're making this record. The Criteria Studios in Miami. And this this guy walked, the producer, co-producer, walks in with this metal box. And I said, hey, what's that? He says, oh, this is the Lin One drum machine. This is the, the coolest thing right now. The Bee Gees are using it next door on their records. It's the new sound. I went, oh, cool. What, what are you using that for? He says, well, we're going to use it on this song, which happened to be Jack and mm -hmm. Diane. And I went... Are you kidding me? I'm going to be replaced by a machine now? I've been replaced by two guys two years ago. Now I'm going to be replaced by a machine? 
grabbed the, the machine, took the manual, went in the, the uh, lounge and started learning how to program, and I came up with that whole beat at the beginning, yeah. which is all machine. You know, doosh, 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 And then I gave the box back to them, and I'm like, God, man, this stinks. I'm in the... I didn't use that word. I used a whole bunch of other words. But, you know, <laughs> can't say that on this popcorn talk. So, anyway, I, I, I was upset because I was like, you know, what's next? Going to get fired again? And then all of a sudden I'm summoned into the control room by John. He says, we need a, we need a drum solo right after the second chorus. And I'm like, oh, my God. And at that moment I'm realizing, serve the song, serve the song, serve the song. What's going to sound good on the radio? If I don't get this, I'll be fired. You know, so yeah. I was under the gun. So it was like either hit a home run with, you know, two outs, ninth inning, you know, full count. It's either a home run or come back next year. And so uh, long story short was I came up with that drum break that, you know, made Blue John up. It was his biggest hit ever yeah. today. And then it, it launched my career. But he, the, the scary thing is, and the funny thing is, the day it went to number one, I was in that same hotel room at Chateau Marmont. Same room. It went to number one. It was like I'd been fired from the re- previous record in that room. Now it's number one. It was kind of cool, but the way my brain went was I went, oh, this is great. But then I freaked out thinking, oh, my God, can I do this again? i got to do this again. Once isn't enough. Oh, my God, how am I, you know, how, what do you, mm-hmm. how do you practice? What's the next? What's yeah, the next? Yeah, how do you practice that? How do you practice? See, I hate... The unexpected and being, you know, you know, under the gun on at that moment is is a tough thing to manage, and and people can become paralyzed and frozen and so fearful of those situations they don't they avoid putting themselves mm-hmm. in those situations. And I talk about that in my speaking is how to you know deal with that. I mean, it's a it's a it's a heavy thing. You don't want anything to be an anchor in your life. You know. Did you realize at that point you said that that would, you know, take your career to another level? Did you realize at that point that it would? Like when you're playing that song and you realize that that makes the song sound the way it did, did you think at that point that that would take your career on another trajectory? No, not at all, because I, was, I wasn't experienced enough to know the, the, the impact that mm-hmm. that could possibly have on the radio. Mm-hmm. I was just glad at that point that I was on the song. Yeah. And then what happened was... The, by the way, that album, you know, won two Grammys and um, and sold millions of records. But the first song that was released was called "Hurt So Good," and um, that did really well. It got to number two. And back then, when you were number two on the top one hundred, you were on every radio station, mm-hmm. you were on MTV, you were. Every, it wasn't like being number one or two on some hillbilly, yeah. you know, rating like this is uh, number one on the Cats and Dogs <laughs> and Pudding charts. Like, who cares? Yeah. This was the big one. This was yeah, the big so, deal. And, and, and uh, <clears throat> it got to number two and stayed there at number, uh, number two for six weeks because I think Ebony and Ivory or Eye of the Tiger <laughs> was <laughs> suppressing us. And, you know, and so we, we stayed there. And the record label thought, they saw it kind of, they thought it was going to go down. So they released Jack and Diane. Jack and Diane goes flying up the charts. They both are in the top ten. Hurt so good wouldn't leave the top ten. The, uh, America just embraced it. It was a, it was this new sound, Americana. Mm-hmm. The videos we did were in Indiana. Mm-hmm. It was like this was just a new everything. And that song, by the way, 
when we played the playback of Hurt So Good at Cherokee Studios on Fairfax, there was a, uh, I don't know, it was vice president of Polygram or whoever, some big wig was there. He went, nah, I don't get it, man. He said, you know, John, you're, you're, uh, you should be more like Neil Diamond. John walked him to the door and literally kicked him in the ass out into the street. And we got dropped. And uh, but <laughs> so, the, the, I think the way the story goes, and, and, and people correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what happened was somebody believed in us and, and started getting that song played on two major radio stations in America, and the, and the, uh, the ratings went way up on those songs and the call-ins. And so all of a sudden, bam, we were back in business. Was, you know, I know the music industry now is kind of just you're gearing and picking the right times. And like you're saying, even then, you know, the, the song was at number two. And then, oh, we need to maybe put Jack and Diana to be able to, to jumpstart that or to be able to, you know, get that out. Yeah. Was the industry as much control back then of trying to get people to play it? Or was it more natural of like, like you're saying, you get it played on two radio stations and then it just, it just picks up? Well, the, big, the, big, the two big formats back then was you had album-oriented radio stations, they play every song on the mm-hmm. album. And you had these DJs that people would listen to. You remember there was no computers or, or, or um, you know, TV channels. It was all about radio. And people would listen and you got to really like your DJ and, and you trusted them. And if they said this is a good album, you buy it. And if they may have told you three other albums that were good and you believe them now. Yeah. And there was this personal relationship. And then Top 100 Radio, the the chart, the singles radio would watch the what the album-oriented radio stations were playing, and they'd see which song out of an album was getting the most hits or the most popular vote, and then they would take that song and play that song on the top 100, and that's how it worked. And of course, you know, you had you had A and R people, artists and relations people working radio. I'm sure, there was money flying all over the place, mm-hmm. but th- it was uh, it was there was it was work. It, they didn't yeah. just like casually put it out there. Yeah, and it was organic. Of like, people are listening, people are calling in, people yep. are mm-hmm. making it rise up the charts, and that certainly, like you said, really took off. I mean, I, again, I gave these stats at the very beginning. Over three hundred million records sold feature yeah. your work, and, and over sixty. Grammy-nominated record. Is that staggering to you to hear, to look back and say, wow, we did make a lot of good music? Yeah, well, you know what, now, you know, <clears throat> when I wrote, the only reason I knew those figures, the, the the book company was saying, well, we have to promote this book. How many records do you play on? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> So, you never thought about it. No, well, I know because I'm the guy. I'm like a running back in football. You know, uh, you know, I'm just focusing on the end zone, play by play, game by game, game season by season, and all of a sudden at the end of your career, you go, "Oh my God, I'm the number three running back ever." That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You just focus on doing your job, song by song, you know, take by take. And I was, you know, very aggressive about. Uh, being a session player because what happened was we I made this you know I got my break with Mellencamp and then I really loved recording I loved the whole the challenge of experimentation we used to experiment a lot because there was there were budgets and we could spend two weeks on just one song and then throw it away and then start over again but the point is after eight years John just suddenly quit and I went what? And I'd just gotten divorced, had child support, had a house mortgage, had car payments, had, you know, normal stuff mm-hmm. that people have. And suddenly I went, oh, my God, I'm at the mercy of this guy saying I'm working or I'm not. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Now, he didn't quit for three years, but when he told me that, it was very believable. 
So suddenly, it, you know, it hit me hard, and I went, I was freaked out. And then, then pretty soon after, I went, you know what? I've been working for this one rock star for eight years, and I'm going to go work with all the other ones. So I came mm-hmm. out to L.A. and started pounding out, and I was getting called to play on records. See, just because you're in a, a successful rock band that's on the radio doesn't mean you're a session player. But see, with all that classical training I had, I had a, 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 a huge depth of knowledge, like mm-hmm. writing charts. That's why I always people say, wow, man, you work a lot. Well, you know, it's because I, I can write out 50 <laughs> songs and be writing songs for 10 more for another show. Like I'm doing the Latin Grammy Awards coming up. I'll have everything written mm-hmm. out. And then I could, you know, if I, when I go to my studio, if I've got 12 songs to record, I write it all out. And I go bam, 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 bam. Then I'm working on this and I'm working on that. And what happened was I, I, I started to make it really big in the session world. And then I was so, got into it so much. I created, you know, obviously, you know, rock and roll was the first mm-hmm. thing people went for. But then I started, you know, Nashville was only four and a half hours from Indiana. I started, I went after the producers down there. Next thing you know, I'm, I'm recording with like people like Willie Nelson and, and you know Waylon Jennings and, and and Johnny Cash, the real country artists and and you know uh, you know I've played with you know Dolly Parton, you know Loretta Lynn. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the, uh, George Jones and Conway Twitty, and I'm looking at the the more mm-hmm. traditional guys. And I created that whole thing. And then next thing you know, you know I, people were starting to realize I could play all styles. Recording with BB King, playing live with Ray Charles, Buddy Guy. You know, then you know, but then Tony Iommi from Sabbath, and then mm-hmm. you know Alice Cooper, and then the girls, you know Michelle Branch and Melissa Etheridge, Celine Dion. I mean, just all over the map. And that is a, that's the most difficult thing to do as a drummer to be get the reputation that you can play multiple styles. You're a touring drummer and a session drummer. Mm-hmm. It's just to answer your question, I didn't plan it as much as it. I just worked my butt off and went after what was my deepest desire, which was to make records and to tour and and to feel good doing it. Yeah, and you talk about a lot of that in your book. Uh, mm-hmm. I know talking about uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you was with uh, Michelle Branch, and you talk about you know one of the the albums that you played for her, and I think you talked about you know for studio and for session and for studio and playing live, and you voted I think five years in a row number one uh, drummer for pop and yeah. rock for studio and session yeah. which was incredible which album was there any of them that you didn't think would take off any of them that really made it big you're talking about you know when oh, I'll tell the, you one yeah okay well when we were recording this is one of the biggest records I ever played on was Meatloaf Bad Out of Hell 2 mm-hmm. okay and <laughs> we were recording this song it's, it's the traditional length of a song on radio is three and a half minutes Okay, and then book it's like three hundred and twenty-five pages. That book was six hundred pages mm-hmm. at one point. We had to shrink it down. But the point is, this the whole that song ended up being like eight minutes long or something, or maybe something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, boy, you guys are wasting your money. But hey, man, pay me. I'm cool. And <laughs> as long just, as I get it, this long, huge thing. And they, and then a year later, I'm called to do more on this record because they were real slow at doing it and. Very meticulous. And they said, one of the songs we're going to do is, I'll do anything love, but I won't do that. An intro, we're adding to it. I went, are you nuts? That's now going to be ten and a half minutes long. You're never going to get that. That's never going to be played on the radio. Number one in 20 countries in one week. And that sold over, oh my God, it's, it's way up there. I mean, it's like, 
it could be up there near, I don't know, 30, 40 million mm-hmm. records by now. I don't know, something like that. It's crazy. I, so I was wrong. And I was wrong about another one, a Patti Smythe duet with uh, Don Henley. Sometimes love just it just ain't enough. And it was right when grunge came out. And I went, guys, they're never going to play this. They're playing Nirvana. They're playing Soundgarden. They're playing Pearl Jam. They're playing Mother Love Bone. They don't want to hear this crap. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> that was like number one on every chart except for the top 100. It was number two for... Wow. Six weeks. Wow. It was, you know, I was just wrong. You started out playing uh, when you were 10 and you had seen the Beatles play on the Ed Sullivan Show, 1964. Do you still remember that, I mean, vividly, of oh, yeah. watching that? Oh, yeah. What emotions did you have? Well, first of all, there was nothing to watch on TV back then. So me and my twin brother are outside playing, and my mom gets on the porch. This is like western Massachusetts, kind of a mm-hmm. beautiful, you know, mountainous area. My mom jumps on the porch and says, at night, she says, boys, come in here real quick. Come on, run. Let's go. i got to show you something. I'm like, uh-oh. We did something wrong, and my brain's going through, what I do, what I do, what I do. And I get in there. She's pointing to this black and white RCA TV set with the rabbit ears, you know, and tinfoil clumps on it to get better reception. And, and there's the Ed Sullivan show, and there's these four guys with long hair, suits, playing electric <laughs> guitars and bass. And the lead singer goes, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I know. I was like blown off my, you know, there was nothing like that I'd ever seen or felt. And I'm electrified. And I said to mom, who are these guys? She said, well, they're the Beatles. So um, there was nothing close to that. Maybe Christmas, you know. And uh, so, the, yeah, I'll never forget that. But the the deepest heavy experience that I experienced was 50 years later. I'm called to play on a TV show, a CBS special called The Night That Changed America, that 72 million people, I was one of them, saw them on the Ed Sullivan Show, honoring them. And now I'm playing with Paul McCartney and Ringo, the star of the two remaining Beatles, honoring them. I mean, I'm like, wow, that's a story. That's real. Did you know right when you got the call? Did you expect you weren't expecting the call? No, I didn't know. I didn't even know the show was going to happen. But when I got the call, I get the call. It's from Don Woods. Hey, are you available on this date? I'm like, oh, my (laughs) God. Oh, my. And he saw the Beatles, too. But, you know, I was just blown out of my my mind. You know, and I just just gave this talk uh, last weekend. uh, It was for, it's about how to find your bliss. You know, kind of gets mm-hmm. into your whole thing of your, your why. And, um, <clears throat> okay, so the bliss, to those who don't know, is like, it's extreme happiness, mm-hmm. you know? How do you find it? And I, I dug deep, started thinking about that. And, and here's what I came up with. I, 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 real, I found my bliss because I realized what my purpose in life is when I saw that show. I didn't consciously have that discussion, but going back, I went, wow. I realized what my purpose in life was after that show, which was to make people feel good. Now, let me explain more what that's about. I was drawn to the drums because it made me feel good. I was drawn to playing music because it made me feel good. But because I'm such an excitable guy, when I'm playing the drums and playing music, I started to notice the guys in the band were being affected by that, made them feel good, which made me feel even better because I was... You know, they were getting yeah. off on me. Yep. And then you're playing in front of audiences, and I've played in front of as many as one to a million. 
and you make an audience feel good, and then you get that back, and then you give it back, and you get it back, mm-hmm. and then you and the band, and the band and you, and all this thing. I mean, that's a huge thing, and that's all under the heading of making people feel good, including myself. Yeah. And that's it's a connection. What, yeah. It's real human. It's real live. It's like there's nothing like it. Look, at humans are, ma- are, are designed, our purpose on, on the planet is, is about feeling. Ironically, with all the technology, it's kind of like getting away from it. But the point is we are feeling creatures. Through feeling is how we learn the deepest things about ourselves. We're spiritual, we're mental, and we're physical. And feelings are all tied into all three of those things. You were self-taught. What does that mean? I mean, for someone who is self-taught drums, I played drums growing up, and I took lessons from someone. I mean, were you taking any lessons, or was this something you were just listening to drums, and you you got a snare drum, and then you got, I think, maybe like one cymbal. Yeah, Yeah, something. I mean, was that just figuring out what sounded good? Well, you know, in fourth grade, they ask you, what instrument you want to play? And I Mm -hmm. said, drums. And then they give you a, a rubber pad. With some sticks and the guys, the band, yeah, the band directors, kind of like just teaching you so that you can play a snare drum part with the concert band mm-hmm. thing. I'm like, you know, by the time I was 13, I was playing in clubs, man. I, well, at 10, I started my own band. When I, I asked the mom, to, my mom, to call up the Beatles as soon as I saw them, <laughs> I wanted to play with them. I the Alley Cats, what, yeah. And then I started my band called the Alley Cats because my mom didn't have their number. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Mom. Yeah, come on. She didn't call him up. She wouldn't buy me a drum set. And uh, so I, I I, bought a snare drum and a cymbal. I borrowed money from them. I was gardening at 25 cents an hour. Got a snare drum cymbal, and I formed this band called the Alley Cats, and we played Beatles music, of course. And so I was self-taught, meaning I kind of listen, and I try to figure out the part, or the, the, the guitar player might say, no, 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 he's doing this. Or, you learn that. We learn, I learned that way. There was no... Where I grew up, there was nobody teaching rock and roll drums. It was all new. There was no mentor to tell me how to make it as a rock star. There was no books on it. There was no school of rock back then. That's why I went into classical music, because in our family, we, we all went to college, and my parents asked me, well, you know, you're going to have to pick a major. Mm-hmm. I went, well, music, but it was all classical. Mm-hmm. It just so happened the Boston Symphony Orchestra, their summer festival was three miles from my house in the summer, and I started studying with the percussionists from that, uh, orchestra and you know he basically kicked my ass and taught me enough how to play mallets which is vibraphone mm-hmm. or marimba and enough to play reed and play legitimate snare drum and timpani to get into the University of Massachusetts which had a a a, uh, a program you know for classical mm-hmm. I played mm-hmm. orchestras and all kinds of it was a really big learning curve for me mm-hmm. but in one year I transferred to the number one Orchestra, uh, you know, school in the country, Indiana University yeah. School of Music, called Jacob School of Music. Now, well, actually, I have my own. Uh, after twenty years, I got a. Yep. I have a twenty-year scholarship there. Uh, you are, and from nineteen ninety-three and then nineteen ninety-seven, you were associate professor there. Oh wow, you did as well. Work. Yes, of course, I, I even know you left out the part where you uh, studied in Colorado okay. at, at Juilliard for the okay. summer because because the one was it a cellist. Yeah. You were hoping was there? Tracy, yeah. She didn't show up. Okay, now you brought it up. So I met UMass, and I this hot cellist was hot as they can be in, in the orchestra world, but she was hot, and I heard her talking about going to Aspen. I'm like, what's Aspen? And it's a summer orchestral program for you know really talented uh, musicians that you have to audition to, but it's run by Juilliard, mm-hmm. which is one of the top three schools in the country for classical music. 
I audition, and the way you audition, they say you have to, out of four categories, snare drum, multiple percussion, mallets, and timpani, you audition, send your tape in, and I did I did it on all four, thinking, ah, mm-hmm. I'll get extra credit. I never heard from them. The last day of school, I'm leaving with, you know, I had my whole summer planned. I had an Almond Brothers-type band, and I was going to study with the percussionists again. And I'm leaving school, and I went, oh, damn, I forgot my mail. I went back, and I... Good thing you did. Yep. And you read it in the book. There was a, I thought it was a check, and I opened it up. I'm accepted to Aspen, and I have to go in two weeks. I think I was an alternate. Somebody canceled. I get there. The cellist didn't show up. I'm the worst percussionist there. I mean, my reading skills stunk. These kids that were there had been playing timpani and marimba since they were in diapers, and I'm just playing scales. And I think the teacher there was a little bit like, whoa, I picked the wrong guy. But he was the one that taught at Indiana University. He was brilliant. He was a very mm-hmm. intense guy, very very intelligent, deep-minded guy. And so I chose to follow him, and he tried to discourage me, and I demanded an audition. And I auditioned in, in, in Colorado, and I went straight to Indiana for four years. And in the, in the summer, it took I can, in the four years at uh, Indiana, I auditioned every year to go to Tanglewood, which was the number one student orchestra in America, run by the Boston Symphony Orchestra, three miles from my house. I struck out three times, three consecutive years. The fourth year, I auditioned again, and I got in. So situations like that, and you talk about them a lot in the book, and I know just from knowing your life of you've been in positions where you're not the best, where you come in and you're feeling maybe overwhelmed. And I think a lot of situations like that, people have two choices. They either look at that and say, well, this wall is too high. I can't climb it. Or they look at the wall and say, you know what? I'm going to climb this wall. I'm going to get to the top, and I'm going to enjoy the view, and I'm going to just work my butt off. And you've always done the second. Why and how? Well, you know, I don't usually say this, but I think the the, the bottom line it's it's in my DNA, and and like my grandfather fought his way out of Russia before the Russian Revolution. I mean, that's got to be a part of it. I mean, he literally fought his way out. He was going to be killed by the Bolsheviks. He gets out. Wow. He ends up at Ellis Island, Jersey, and he had my dad. And my dad had to have picked up some of that stuff from my from my from my my grandfather. My dad did one year of college, Syracuse, or maybe before he went to college, he ended up in the what would be considered the, the Army Air Force, and he ran the last 13 missions bombing Hitler over Germany hmm. in these big-ass bombers that got blown out of the sky. He saw planes dropping all over the place. This is like a 19-year-old kid, you know. Then he went back and did, you know, four or five years of college and, um, and then, you know, raised a family. And, you know, I mean, he, he was a cool guy. Very strong, very kind, very deep thinker, but he was a badass too. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. he was there was he was uh, had boundaries, discipline, and uh, so I, I mean I, I think it's in my DNA or I learned it from him. So you know, but you know I also grew up in the hippie time, so we rebelled from all that. But I still had it in me, mm-hmm. and when push came to shove, I had what it took you know, to uh, persevere, you know, to work hard, be self-disciplined, persevere, never give up. And uh, it wasn't easy, man. I was I was mortified at times. You know, I got, as you read in there, I mean, I, the conductor at it, 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 mm-hmm. uh, Aspen just literally destroyed me, you know, made fun of me, uh, you know, uh, people were laughing. 
And I, I could have easily just gone home. And I was there ever the thought of quitting? No. There was the, the, the well, I mean, I may have wanted to quit, but my, my inner soul would not allow me. So what I do, and this is where I develop the eight hours a day practice, seven days a week. I'll show you. I'll show you. Mm-hmm. I'm not as talented as you, but I'm going to work twice as hard. And, and I would catch up. I have this thing called RPS that I talk about in my speeches, which is the repetition of, of um, any skill is the preparation, P, to be successful. Repetition, preparation, success. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, you, you know, a golf swing, a, a, you know, a, 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 an athlete, a musician. You practice, practice, mm-hmm. practice, practice, practice. Practice, you know, it's not that old thing. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? practice you know and i still use this this whole method when i get you know there's no shortcuts you want to be good at something you want to be good at your diet you want to be good at at lifting weights you want to be good at anything it just put in the time man there's no shortcuts and if you're looking for something to land in your lap it ain't gonna happen and there's guys like me to come and steal what you're waiting for love that you know you certainly played in a lot of Big name bands, and you guys are touring, and you talk about this, and just the atmosphere that you guys are experiencing with huge crowds and women, and you know the times of the hippiness. Mm. And how did people stay focused? Because there's one thing to be able to get the drive to be able to get there, but to be able to stay there, you need the mm-hmm. focus. How did you do it? And was there ever anyone who kind of got off track in in the bands, and you guys had to be like, hey, no, what do you like? We're here. Shape up. Well, guys got fired, you know. And, you know, in the Malencamp band, if you didn't produce, you'd get dumped. I mean, it, it was, it, we would rehearse from 11 to 5, 7 to 11, five days a week, till we made it. It was a business. It mm-hmm. was, and, you know, and, and that's the way we did it. I mean, I have a saying, because it goes like this. I'll never be as great as I want to be, but I'm willing to spend the rest of my life trying to be as great as I can be. And that's like the running back. The greatest, you name the greatest running back. Does he get a touchdown every time he gets the ball? Hell no. Mm. He keeps trying, though. All he's looking at is the end zone. Play by play. Mm -hmm. You know, he might fumble one time. He might break his ankle one year. And then he has to come back and try again. It's just that attitude of always persevering, always trying, always going for it. And once you realize that if you keep trying and you make it, that and you're successful, that doesn't mean you're successful for the rest of your life, that that's the equation to keep becoming successful. You under, you, you've accepted being a human being. You've ex- accepted the process. It, you've accepted that, it, you know, to be successful and stay successful, you have to keep doing the things that got you successful. You know, it's like someone says, how do you do that? Well, I practice six hours a day, seven days a week. Well, but then how did you keep getting all the the work? I practice six hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, there's other things involved, like communication skills and being able to get along with people, you know, because, when, like, I could be recording with B.B. Mm-hmm. B. King on Monday, Smashing Pumpkins on Tuesday, Bob Seeger on Wednesday, Bob Dylan on Thursday, and somebody else on Friday in five different studios. It's like working for five different corporations. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to get in there and serve. I'm in the service business. Get along with everybody. Do my job. Get the song on the radio. Be number one. Go home. Do it again the next day. And, dude, I am challenged. You never know when the red light comes on. It's like I, I, I recognize when, you know, it's like, mayday, mayday, we're in trouble. Where you, There's something that's not going right, and it's you. 
and you have to figure out, okay, I got to solve this problem. And I've done this. Happened this year. It's a weird thing. I was going between a, a three feel and a two feel. It was a Latin thing meets a, a rock thing, and it was this kind of it went from one style to the next. And I knew how to do it, but for some reason, I was, I was my body from repetition wanted to do something else, and I was trying to work it out. And the producer said, "You know, take take a break. We're gonna we're gonna have lunch." I went, "No." I stayed there while they ate lunch for thirty minutes and went over it. When I got it, I did it thirty more times. So I not only got it, I knew it. Mm-hmm. And when it was time to record, I got it. But that moment, there was that panic and fear. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then I went, dude, you always persevere. All you have to do is put in the time, stay on it, slowly but surely, ignore everybody else. You're still panicking inside, but I got it. And Not- 30 minutes. Well, and what is 30 minutes? I mean, if you look at that, yeah. I'm like, if most people would look at it and be like, give up lunch? Yeah. What? It's like, that's 30 minutes for the success of nailing it yeah. and the success that that will produce because the people who you nail it for, you get that reputation. Yeah. It's massive. Exactly. Do you ever see things, you know, and people who are so dedicated, you know, and a lot of articles, they're like, oh, he sacrificed. He did that. Do you ever see it as a sacrifice? Hell no. I love it. I love it. You know, I mean, this morning, you know, I wake up, I spent an hour working on this new speech, went to the chiropractor, become taller <laughs> do I seem taller and then I worked out in my gym because to solidify what I had done that's what the chiropractor mm-hmm. said then I um, <clears throat> did a whole bunch of work of course in between then I'm here I'll go back I'm going to do cardio and then I'm going to oh I worked on yeah I, I practiced on the drums um, and then I uh, a certain technique I have a 30 minute routine I do that that completely d- defines my style I just do it every day actually on tour I do it three times a day you know, mm-hmm. even even that's a good example of like even on a show day, I will do this routine which is specific to make me sound great. Right now, I came up with a routine. It just does all the most important things that I need to do when I play the drums with feet and hands going all at the same time. So I'll do that for thirty minutes, like a power workout, and then before sound check, then after sound check, uh, before the show, I'll do it again, dressing room. And then if I'm really super cool, I'll do it before I go to bed so I wake up warmed up. Wow. And that, and that, that I believe in that system. Even where I'm at, talk about trying to stay successful, that's what that is. That's like, you've made it, ah, I got this. Not necessarily. You've got this if you keep doing the things that got you where you are now. The things that made you get successful, you should never give up on. Those are the things that made you successful. Most likely, those are the things that are going to keep you successful. You know, you have so many stories in here, and we were talking before of some of the stories that didn't make it, where it was a 600-page book and it got down to 325. Give me two stories, and you talked about uh, uh, who was it? Cameron Diaz. Cameron Diaz, and what? Do you have another story? Like, the tell Ca- us, Dave tell Grohl. us a story. I got, I got the Dave Grohl story and the Cameron Diaz All right. story. Which what one do, do you want? Both. Oh, we'll start with the we guy. Got, we got five minutes. We got time okay. for both. Dave Grohl. I'm in a hotel. I'm hungover. Just played with the Buddy Rich Big Band in New York. I go downstairs. I'm paying the bill. All of a sudden, this skinny little guy, Hyper, comes up. Yo, Kenny, what's happening? It's Dave. He says, dude, uh, I got this new band, man, we're going to showcase. You want to come tonight? I went, I'm not, dude, I got to go home. I said, you know, I, I, my fly. He says, I said, what's the name of your band? He says, Foo Fighters. I went, wow, that's a weird name. Foo Fighters. Oh, that's kind of cool. All right. Good luck. 
That's that one. Cameron Diaz, I'm at the Sunset Marquee at the Whiskey Bar, and um, I, I, I just, I'd left the Malakamp band two years prior. There, I bump into them, which was kind of awkward. I'm recording with Tony Iommi on, for his record from, um, with Billy Corgan. 13-hour day session that day uh, with a 45-minute break, and I know I have to do one the next day. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm in the, the bar, and um, Cameron Diaz had just made it big with that uh, movie you know, about Mary. Something about Mary. Yeah. And he was talking to Jimmy Chamberlain, actually, and I wanted to meet Jimmy Chamberlain. Someone's kind of set me up from the Pumpkins band. He wanted to see what would happen because I'd never met Jimmy, and I replaced him on the tour. Mm-hmm. So he taps Jimmy on the on the shoulder, and, and Jimmy turns around, and we're talking. And it was just, I was stressed out by the whole day and everything. I didn't say what I wanted to say. And he turned around, would continue to talk to Cameron. I went, I tapped him on the shoulder again, and I said, listen, man, I'm sorry. I, I want to let you know I'm just honored to play in your <laughs> shoes. You're an amazing drummer. He's one of my favorite drummers and one of my favorite people. We've become really good friends. And I'm just, like, so honored. And, man, the part you came up with and the songs and what a band. I mean, blah, 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 man. You were rocking. Dude, all right, have fun. Bye. <laughs> I went out there, and when the bar started to close, I was in the lounge because it was too many people in the bar. All of a sudden, Cameron Diaz comes over to me, sits on my lap, puts her arms around me, and up close, she's very, very beautiful. <laughs> and when she smiles, that beautiful mouth and those eyes, and she whispers in my ear, and I swear I could feel those lips on my ear, and she's going, I heard what you said to Jimmy. That was really cool. Now, at that moment, back then, uh, at 2 in the morning, gorgeous woman on the planet Earth sits on a rock star drummer's lap at the Sunset Marquee. It's usually like, room 301, <laughs> let's rock. What do you want? Drinks, food? What do you want? A horse? A, a boat? I mean, what do you want? Let's go. <laughs> but my point is, not that she would have even considered me. My point is, in my brain, I went, I want. Nope. You have a session tomorrow, 13 hours. It's going to be badass if you try to have any. you got to get to bed right now so that you can kick ass. And work has always come first over everything. Everything. Hence my third marriage. Uh, <laughs> work has always come over everything. It's just the way I'm built. So I'm not saying that she would have even. But, but you said no to her. I said, That's what I I said no to me. I didn't even t- ask her. I didn't even try. But I would have tried. That was my... I would have mm-hmm. said, dude, let's... What do you want to do, man? You want to have another drink? Let's go. Another bar? What's your favorite mm-hmm. bar in time? We would have done something. I mean, sat on my lap at 2 in the morning. Come on. This seemed like, <laughs> like a logical thing to say. <laughs> let's keep going. And then, yeah, those are the two stories that didn't make the book. That's, that's incredible. And I know you're coming out with another book, too. So we're... Yeah. yeah we're really excited for that one. I want to go to the live chat. Some people are asking some questions. Uh, Daniel says, how did it feel to be playing behind... Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis said, then 82-year-old Jerry Lee Lewis kicking the stool back and pumping that piano uh, at Riot Fest in Chicago a few months back. I know you play for Jerry at a lot of shows. So, like, how does that feel to oh, play with him? Well, he's one of the two remaining. It's like him and Willie Nelson. I mean, just to play with him is iconic because he's the, the originator of mm-hmm. rock and roll. I mean, everybody looked up. Elvis looked up to him. Uh, you know, uh, you know um, Carl Perkins looked up to him. Uh, uh, Little Richard looked up to him. Mm-hmm. The Stones looked up to him. The Beatles looked up to him. This guy was the inventor. So even, you know, it's an honor to be on stage with this guy. And his attitude is still the same. No set list, 
you follow me, and the, the, the arrangements are different. It's just real live music, no, no backing tracks, no click tracks, no nothing. And he'll go on stage and say, I'm going to mess up the band, watch this. He's all about, like... And that night at Ridefest, they were, like, doing the mosh pit, and they were, like... He walked on, he saw what was happening, he took off his jacket, undid his shirt, rolled up his sleeves, and did stuff I hadn't seen him do. The classic, kicked the chair, stood up and played. And on the side of the stage, you had people, Wolf Mother was watching, you had people from Elvis Costello's band watching, you had people from Beck watching. Everybody from the other four stages were watching Jerry Lee Lewis. It's like, he's iconic. Amazing. Wow. And you guys have a number of shows coming out. I think one is L.A. on November 17th. I think, uh, is that Cerritos? Or Cerritos? Yeah, 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 in the L.A. area. Uh, final question. What do you consider to be success? It's a word that thrown out a lot. Wow. What is your definition of success? Wow. Wow. Uh, nobody's asked me that before. Well, success to me is being the best that you can be at what you do, and that that never ends. You know, um, you know, just pushing you, pushing yourself, and be the best that you can be. You know, at what you're trying to do, and uh, and then the other aspect is to make a living doing it. <laughs> you know, that's nice. I call that success. Yeah. You know. Well, I think you've been very successful, uh, and certainly in life, in your music. Uh, and writing this book. And if you guys need, I mean, literally the back of the book, John Mellencamp, Melissa Etheridge, John Bon Jovi, John Fogarty, Ringo Starr. That's who he has writing reviews for the back of his book. If you need any motivation to be able to check that out, man, I appreciate you. Thank I you. appreciate you coming. I Thank really you. do. I, again, we met after a Jerry Lee Lewis show a couple months ago, and I was like, I need to be able to just have a longer conversation with him, and I feel like it just be so inspiring and motivating. And it was. I mean, well, you know, and the, the the next book is the how I did that, and then mm-hmm. I have a, a speaking business that I go and speak and uh, I talk about, you know, how to be successful mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So there's a lot more coming, and I'm still doing everything else I've been doing. Yeah, not slowing down anytime no, soon. No, no, no. Not at all. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of I Could Never Be on the Popcorn Talk Network. Certainly, you can catch us after the show. We're all on social media. You can follow the Popcorn Talk at the Popcorn Talk on Instagram and on Twitter. You can follow me at the only MC on Instagram and on Twitter, at Aronoff Official on Twitter, at Kenny Aronoff on Instagram. Shout him out. Give him some love. He's very active on there. And certainly, we're live here every single Monday. For those of you who joined us today, we'd love to see you back next week in the live chat. We're talking with people who have achieved success. So you think, man, this path was easy for them. They had money. They knew people. But I guarantee at some point they thought about maybe giving up or trying a different path. And we uncover those stories. We're also on Apple iTunes. Go over there. Give us five stars. Give us a little comment. We'll feature you at the beginning of next week's episode. Much more to come this season on I Could Never Be. Thank you guys for joining us. We'll see you next time. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit PopcornTalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only, and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals. <laughs>